Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And in a similar vein, Proverbs 27.1 declares, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what one day will bring. The wisdom of these Proverbs complement each other. Basically, don't assume you know how things are going to turn out. Even the best laid plans are subject to change. The Proverbs, the, the writer of the Proverbs is trying to say God is the only sure thing. Now, that reality, that things change unexpectedly, that's hard enough uh, to accept, I think, when we're just going about our everyday lives. Like, my family planned this trip to Whistler in late August, so we went up there, and I had no idea that on the second day, my oldest daughter Sophia would crash on her bike and sprain her wrist, and that we'd have to come back to Bellingham for affordable x-rays, because they're crazy expensive up there. I didn't know that. I didn't know that she would be able to ride her bike the rest of the week, and we'd have to do different things than we had planned on doing. We don't often plan for major illnesses that can completely change the trajectory of our best laid plans. We rarely anticipate a recession's going to hit, and I'm going to be out of work. And we can't possibly know when a natural disaster is going to come and take our house away, or at least the power, right? These things happen. But it seems to me that these unexpected um, corrections, interruptions, detours, disasters, whatever you, you want to call them, it seems to me that they're harder to accept when they happen in the line of duty following Jesus, right? It, it's harder to accept these detours when we think we're calling directly God's call in our life. Now, Moses knew a thing or two about being burned while being obedient to God. He was already feeling rejected by his ancestors, the Hebrews, and the people of his upbringing, the Egyptians. Moses became a lowly shepherd in Egypt because he was a fugitive. He ended up marrying the daughter of a pagan priest, and he started a family, and he was a shepherd, and he was a nobody in pretty much anybody's eyes. And then one day, Yahweh, the living God, revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. God claimed to have heard the cry of the Israelites, and he said, I'm sending you, Moses, to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. God said he would be with Moses. So Moses obeyed God by first going to the Israelite elders, who then got on board with the plan. And then Moses and his brother Aaron and the elders of Israel all went together to Pharaoh and demanded that Pharaoh let the people go, let Israel go to worship the Lord in the wilderness. Moses took a great risk and was obedient to God. But then something happened that he didn't foresee. Pharaoh laughed in his face. The Israelite slaves who were already living in extremely harsh conditions suddenly got worse conditions. Pharaoh gave them more labor and less resources. The increased burden was so great that the Israelites stopped thinking of rescue altogether. Now they were just thinking, how do we survive? All of a sudden, they went from hopeful expectation to anger at Moses for having brought the wrath of Pharaoh upon them. Moses, in turn, says to the Lord, Why have you brought this harm on your people? Why did you ever send me? I felt like that before, maybe not as extreme. Maybe you have too. 
Let's see what the scriptures have to say to us about this. Would you stand, please, as we read Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 6, 1 through 13, and I'm going to skip the genealogy. We're going to talk about it a little bit, but a lot of names. (laughs) And then uh, I'll pick it back up in uh, chapter 6, verse 28 through 7, 7. You'll follow along with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under a strong arm he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they have sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How how then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them charge to the sons of Israel and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Enter the genealogy. Then a little bit of recap, now in chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I will make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, My people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Lord, speak to us through your word. Not just the surface meaning of the text. Not just an account of something that happened long ago. But reveal to us your trustworthy character. Encourage our hearts. And help us to be men and women who are obedient after you. Amen. You may be seated. So basically, God has put them on alert. Look out. I'm about ready to act in a significant way. In fact, God is about to act in the most significant way in Scripture 
since the creation. Noah and the flood, huge event. The covenant with Abraham, absolutely foundational. The burning bush, spectacular. But what is about to take place is perhaps the most influential act of God until the advent of Jesus himself. In a world of tribal religions, territorial gods, and racist, xenophobic political policies, that was a mouthful, uh, Yahweh is about to make himself known to the world by humbling the most powerful king in that part of the world. They, people that live around there, they didn't travel very far, so if you were in that area of Egypt, Pharaoh was the most powerful person you had ever seen, you had ever heard of. God spoke to Moses and says something that, if you've read Genesis and the first part of Exodus, sounds a little redundant, contradictory. It sounds as if God is revealing his name, Yahweh, to Moses for the first time in history. And while he revealed himself to the patriarchs, it seems to say that he only revealed himself as El Shaddai, or God Almighty. Now, it is true in Exodus that God typically reveals himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But he's also, in Genesis, makes himself known as Yahweh. Literally, I am. And after all, what good would it do to tell Moses, hey, go tell the leaders of Israel that Yahweh sent you if they'd never heard of Yahweh in the first place, right? So that's kind of weird. And then again, if God is revealing himself to the first time, for the first time to Moses here in chapter 6, what about in chapter 3 when he did the same thing? What is this? Is this a second revelation? Is this just another tradition that they're trying to put into this text. I think that the point here is not so much the name of God as if Moses had forgotten God's name. The point is the power and character of God. Moses' faith in God's desire and ability to rescue was shaken at this point in his life. So God reminds Moses of his name. In the ancient world, names were so much more than just identifying a person like that's Marcus, so I know when I see that name tag, I know that's Marcus or, or, or Lindsay uh, or Jan. Um, it's more than just an identifying marker for a face to a name. In the ancient world, a name communicated the character of a person, that, that person's essence. In fact, the Hebrew name Yahweh is not a noun at all, like our names are nouns, right? But Yahweh is not a noun, it's a verb. It means that God is dynamic, creative unbounded. God is self-determining. He has always been. He is alpha and omega, beginning and the end. He simply is, without explanation, without strings attached. So God makes his name, his essence, his, his, the, the character of his being known to Moses for relational purposes. He wants Moses to know he can trust him, and he reminds him that Moses is not alone. He's one man and a much larger story. And that story is the story of God and the story of creation. Moses is reminded that he's part of fallen humanity and therefore part of the people that God is trying to rescue, part of the people that God is bent on rescuing. So Moses is realizing then that he's part of the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And now Yahweh is about to act with Moses, and that is an extremely encouraging thing for him. Not only is this an encouraging word for Moses, but it's a correcting word. God does not exist to make us happy. 
He doesn't work on the same schedules and timelines that you and I come up with. Everybody knows that, right? (laughs) We make plans in our head, and God sometimes orders the steps in a different way than we had laid out. And in this case, what the world needed wasn't Moses to necessarily feel good about his performance before Pharaoh. What the world needed was God to make his character known in a significant way. You see, Egypt needed to know God just as much as Moses needed to know God, just as much as Israel needed to know God. From the very beginning, God's heart is to save the entire world. He wants to save the slave masters just as much as the people in slavery. And that's why he doesn't just take the shortcut and like teleport, beam me up, Israel, and put them somewhere else. He goes through this whole process so that Pharaoh will hit rock bottom, so to speak, and come to know who he really is. You know, Isaiah, going on a tangent now, Isaiah talks about uh, prophecy of Egyptians coming to worship the living God. And seeing Bethany Eiblings here, who lives in Egypt most of the year and ministers there, um, you're an answer to that prophecy in, in so many ways, Bethany. So, anyway. I think this is a good lesson for you and I as well. We get angry and frustrated and discouraged about things when they don't go according to our plans. And while it's good to know uh, that God is concerned about how we feel, he's not really a prisoner to how we feel. God sees the bigger picture, and he sacrifices what is good sometimes on the altar of what is best. All right, now, our passage has a few aspects of really good news. First of all, God heard the cry of his people. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remembering, it doesn't imply that God forgot. Like, oh, I just remembered I made all these promises a long time ago. Well, I better take care of that. Remembering in the biblical sense has more to do with now is the time to act. The fullness of time has come in a way. And God is ready to act for the reputation of his name for the salvation of the world. Second, God promised to deliver the Israelites from the yoke of slavery, from the bondage they were in. He promised to redeem them. And when Jesus and Paul and the early Christians, and even the Christians today, when we use terms like redemption and deliverance, we're drawing on that story of Exodus. This is the gospel story that shapes the way we think about salvation. It's the archetypal narrative which we use to see Jesus as our deliverer and our redeemer. He delivers us from slavery and sin and redeems us from the consequence of death. And third, God promises that Israel will will be his people and that he will be their God. This is more than just God's reputation. It's about relationship. It's always been about relationship from the beginning when God would take morning walks with Adam and Eve to befriending Enoch to the God who made a self-sacrificing covenant with Abraham to bring a blessing to the entire world. Maybe a more accurate way of saying it is that from God's perspective, his reputation is advanced when people come to have a relationship with him, to know him as Lord and Savior. So Moses is encouraged by this good news, and he goes to the people of Israel to share the message of God with them. When he shares it, though, they wouldn't listen to him. They were overcome by oppression, and the Hebrew literally says that they, were sh- they had shortness of spirit. 
Like they just didn't have enough after being crushed over and over again by Egypt. They were spiritually crushed because of their physical bondage. And I wonder, I don't really have to wonder, I, I know at some point in your life, maybe now, um, and I know I have as well, we felt crushed, right? Have you ever felt just overwhelmed, depressed, unable to respond even to good news, even, in an, in, even unable to respond to a good invitation? There's been times when I, and, and I know many of us, have been unable to respond or even to imagine a life of joy because our personal resources can get used up just surviving. Sometimes what we need is someone else in our life to be like God for us, to be like Jesus in the flesh for us. We need an advocate, a strong support, an ally who is strong enough in that moment to lift us out of where we're at. And in this story, God chose Moses to be that man, to be his agent of deliverance. Once again, Moses is going to shy away from this responsibility. Now, our English translations make it sound like Moses had some speech impediments or something like that, like, oh, I, you know, my lips don't work right. Literally, though, it says he doesn't have circumcised lips. He says, I can't go. My lips aren't circumcised. There's no known evidence that anyone ever, like, cut their lips up or anything like that. What, we don't exactly know what this means, but it probably means that Moses wasn't feeling pure. He wasn't feeling spiritually up to the task. He wasn't ready to approach Pharaoh, and frankly, you can't blame the guy after his last experience with Pharaoh. Let's put that on pause. The passage is going to take a turn, and it's going to seem out of place for a minute. We go from this narrative of God and Moses talking to a genealogy, and this genealogy extends all the way back to the sons of, of Jacob. And you think it's going to list the 12 tribes of Israel. It starts with Reuben, the oldest son, and it goes to Simeon. And then it gets to the third son, Levi. And all of a sudden, it telescopes out. There's no more brothers mentioned after Levi, but it goes crazy with, with all of the descendants of Levi. And we're reminded of a couple of things. One is that Aaron and Moses are connected to that tribe of Levi. And then it goes past Aaron and Moses into the future and talks about Aaron's grandson, uh, Phineas, which we don't see that dude until Numbers 25. Why is this genealogy here? And why does it only mention mostly Levi? And, okay, so here's why. Because we're not simply reading a story. We're reading scripture. And we're not simply reading the story of God, Moses, and the Exodus. We're reading the story that was passed down to the Israelites who are wandering in the desert after Exodus. So remember, this stuff, all of these stories exist in oral tradition. But people believe they were not written down until people are wandering in the desert, in, you know, after they've escaped Exodus. Now, as you know, I'm assuming, it doesn't take a whole lot to get discouraged about life sometimes. Israel would be rescued from slavery in Egypt, but it wouldn't be long. In fact, Depending on how you read it, it wasn't long at all before they start grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. And they start saying, you know what, maybe it'd be better if we were back in slavery, because at least we could count on three square meals a day, right? And, and they start to complain. And they want to know, can they trust this God? And can they trust this leader that God has given them, Moses? 
And by inserting this genealogy, it reminds the Israelites that Moses is a Levite. And he's a bearer of the promise, and he's a priest from the priestly line. He's authorized by God. And by looking forward, they could see that God is not only the covenant keeper of past things, but he's the God of the future as well. They can trust him. There's one other thing I want to point out about this genealogy. By the time Moses is in the wilderness leading people, he was this faithful, humble, seasoned leader. He's spoken about in the New Testament as the most humble man that ever lived. He learned to trust God even when he couldn't see the results. For many of the children who were born at the time of the Exodus or born in the wilderness, they just know Moses as like the most incredible leader that they could never live up to in the world. Kind of like how many of us might remember our grandparents or great-grandparents. Like, as always, being old and patient and wise and put together and not worried about putting on airs. You know, sometimes I wonder, like, my kids, I wonder if my dad's listening to this, my kids only see my dad the way he is now. This incredibly patient, loving grandfather. I love how my dad is right now. Like, trying to explain that my dad wasn't like that when I was a kid, you know? He was, you know, in the height of his career and a little way more uptight. And, you know, it, it, kids, it wasn't like that. Like, grandpa's changed a lot for the better since then. But sometimes we just see, we just meet people for the first time, and we assume they've always been that way. And I think that, that these stories, remember, Moses traditionally is the one telling the story. So he's telling these people in the wilderness, some of these young folks who just look up to him, hey, I used to screw up all the time. I used to love those stories about when my grandpa got in a fight on the way home from school and uh, got in the principal's office because it, it kind of humanizes somebody, right? It like reminds you that there was a process there, that someone just doesn't become Moses. All right, so it's, I think it's meant to encourage them. These mistakes of Moses encourage them because they can identify, and the success of Moses can encourage them because they could say, oh, I can screw up and God is faithful and still mature. Amen for that. Okay. So chapter 6 closes with the summary of God's initiative to send Moses to Pharaoh. Moses' hesitation. And here, at the beginning of chapter 7, is what I believe is the focus of this whole section. The Lord said to Moses, See, I make you, in our English Bibles it says, as God, that word as should be in italics, it's not in Hebrew, so I make you God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go from his land. Now, many Christians may read this and shudder. We have been so programmed, depending on your tradition, but many of us have been so programmed to think of God's holiness and our sinfulness that we think there must be some kind of typo here. Like, God would never send a man to be God to anybody else. Or we think of New Age movements like the Church of the Divine Man down on Holly Street, and we fear that this is just some kind of hippy-dippy baloney, right? Boy, Lord business from the Lego movie right there. Hippy-dippy baloney. Or maybe God empowered Moses with some kind of superhuman abilities that nobody else could have. It's just for Moses that would make him like God to Pharaoh. All of those could be true. But what if I were to tell you 
that this line about Moses being God to Pharaoh isn't blasphemous after all. In fact, God is the one speaking here. And it isn't hippy-dippy baloney. Moses isn't divine. Moses isn't a god. And it isn't that Moses is enhanced in some special way to make him different or better than a human being. What if I were to tell you, which means I am telling you, that God was simply giving Moses a human task? You see, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that God made men and women in his image. We, you and I, bear his image. And in the ancient Near East, that wasn't some ambiguous description. You know, sometimes we get in like, I remember my undergraduate theology class, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, maybe we uh, have some you know, cre- creativity or uh, the ability to love. Or, you know, we try and like come up with these things that were like God. But see, in ancient Near Eastern cosmology, this was a common phrase. Creation stories, if you read um, you know, Gilgamesh epic, if you read the Sumerian stuff, it, it, they all include stories where the creator gods represent themselves in a human being. And it's usually, almost always, one human being, and it's always a man, and he's always the king. Very convenient if you're that king, because you're a man, and you're the king, and you say, I represent God so-and-so, that means that you have to do whatever I say. It's a very convenient thing to be a king. So they write their creation myth, and they say, the gods are saying that they are indwelling in me, ba-ba-ba. Now, if you're Yahweh, the living God, and you want to communicate the creation story to a people who are accustomed to all these other creation stories, you're probably going to use the same genre. Only The Israelite, the Jewish story, is the only one of all the creation stories that says there's one God who created stuff. The stuff is good, but it's not God's. So in the other creation stories, the stuff is always either divine or it's not good. In the Jewish story, the stuff is always good and not divine. Okay, One God who creates Men and women in his image, men and women in his image, not just a king, not just important people, not just rulers, but every single human being. We're created, you and I, with great dignity, with authority over creation, not to exploit creation, but to cultivate it, not to abuse each other, but to bless one another, not to consume as much as possible, but to be creative and good, and through our agency to reflect the goodness and wisdom of God. That's what it means to be a human being. Now, after human rebellion, sin infected our whole race. We are made in God's image, but we're cracked, we're broken, in need of great salvation and healing. So when we sin... We're not being human. We're being subhuman. To be fully human is to reflect the glory of God, to function with incredible power and humility. I have rarely seen anyone do that well except Jesus. To display amazing glory and loving kindness, that is to be human. C.S. Lewis wrote that if we were to see each other In our glory, we would be terribly tempted to worship what we see. 
Pharaoh had set himself up as God of Egypt, and therefore God of the slaves of Egypt. He's dressed in glory, he's well-fed, he's educated, he's got an army, he's got that makeup stuff that makes him look like, I don't know, fancy, and, and he looks like a god, like what the people would think of. But true humanity is not about externals. God chose to send Moses as his representative, this lowly shepherd with no army, and now not even the support of his own people. And how can we not at this point, how can we not see Jesus in this story, knowing what we know now? The one who Paul says rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his glorious light, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Moses was the shepherd that God sent to deliver Israel. Jesus is the good shepherd who came to rescue the world. Jesus, the creator, became part of creation by becoming human, though never losing his divinity. Jesus became what we are so that we could be what we're meant to be, agents of God, image bearers. Jesus, Jesus did not come just to forgive sins and make sure we have a ticket to heaven. He came to restore us to what we were before the fall, to be like the true Adam and Eve, fully human, glorious image bearers. Moses was sent to be God to Pharaoh on behalf of Israel and Egypt so that God's character and power and ambition to save would be known. And Jesus is God in the flesh. He shows us what it is to be fully human. He became human to save humans so that we could be restored to our glory. If you want to know what it looks like to be fully human, read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. To be that self-assured and, yes, and yet not arrogant. To have mastery over the created order and yet never abuse it. Amazing. In Christ we see that we are sent as agents of God, his image bearers, sent into the world, sent to reflect his glory in how we treat people. Being agents of God means we go about our work with an attitude of wanting to make God's name glorified because of our integrity, because of our craftsmanship, because of our ethics. He doesn't necessarily matter what you do, what your station in his life is, whether you're retired or you clean toilets or you're a doctor or a, a teacher. It doesn't matter the tasks that you're doing. It's how we do them, who we do it for. I mean, sacrificing our ego for the good of others in Jesus' name. What it means to be fully human is an inexhaustible topic and we see it raised over and over again in Scripture. And if you've been here over a few months, you know that I'm always talking about this topic. So we're not going to cover it all tonight. But for now, I want to close with just three things that we could try together on our own. First, let's accept that to be rescued by Jesus is to be forgiven and on the road to restoration. Let's accept that to be fully human is to be an image bearer of God. Second, let's give thanks for that. Think of, I mean, if you were meditate on one thing this week that just means think longly about, okay? Just 
If we were to meditate on how mind-blowingly glorious it would be to be fully human, to be like Jesus, to be able to do the things in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, if you wanted to meditate on a scripture, that would be so worth your while. In fact, I've been doing that this week, just in the Sermon on the Mount, saying to myself, this is a, a picture of life in the kingdom of heaven. I want that quality of life. I want to be the type of person who isn't controlled by my passions, who isn't angry, who doesn't have to promise things or make excuses. My yes is my yes and my no is my no. To be so fully complete and unbroken. That's what it means to be human. And so third, let's think creatively this week about just one area of life. How would being an agent of God change the way you think about your work, about your relationships at home, or about your relationships in the community? How would the fact that being an agent of God, how would that change your priorities in life? I'm not sure, I mean, I, I've been reading this passage all week, Lord. I've been uh, preparing this sermon all week. And I believe these things to be true. I'm not sure I really grasp the power of what you're saying to us. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that this week, you would continue to open up this, this text for us, this reality for us that you would grip our hearts and our imaginations with just how dignified each person is because of who created us and for what purpose you created us, to be your agents in this world. I pray that you would help, help us, Holy Spirit, sift through the waves of implications, the, the million things that might come to mind. And help us to focus on one, the one thing that you want us to live into this week. I appreciate, Lord, that you are not done with us, that you are ever leading us further in and farther up and following you, that you are ever healing our broken areas and making us more whole. So thank you that we, we can trust you to do that. Help us to cooperate this week as we've been hearing afresh, reminded that we are made in your image and sent out as agents of God.